Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Back to Britpop. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Montgomery from one of my favourite 90s indie bands, Geneva. Formed in Aberdeen in 1992, they released two fantastic albums, Further in 97 and Weather Underground in 2000. Andrew talks about getting signed to Nude, being label mates with Suede, the Aberdeen scene, the writing process, musical influences and loads more. I'll be back after the interview to talk about where you can find me on social media and also to plead with you to write a review, like, subscribe, leave a rating, do as much as you can to support Welcome to the, the podcast, podcast Andrew Montgomery. Greatly appreciate Hi, it. In the meantime, great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me on. We were talking a little bit off mic there about the, the concept of this podcast, which is to for me to reconnect to my favourite artists of the 90s and uh, 90s indie especially, which kind of got me into music and writing music and playing guitar and and it's been really great reconnecting with artists like yourselves. And, uh, you know, the, the story of Geneva is quite an interesting one in terms of where you formed and how you kind of started the band. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose maybe the first thing that we, we could say is that, that there weren't that many bands uh, based in Aberdeen that were getting noticed by uh, the music business uh, in those days. So we're talking uh, the mid-1990s. Um, we started life as a band called Sunfish. Uh, 1992 I was working as a journalist newly out of university and um, someone I worked with uh, her boyfriend was a guitarist she she heard me sing started to write songs with Steve Dora the lead guitarist of Geneva and we yeah we got this band going and um, you know it was about three years I think uh, and one change of drummer and that ended up um, getting us signed well late 1995 so so it was it was quite quite a long hard slog and we, but but we never actually played London at all we always played in various places around Scotland and just through Douglas Caskey the drummer he basically had been in a band called Coast down in London and yeah. they were signed to a management company that were a sister company to Nude um, so there was a there was a sort of connection there and David Laurie, the uh, A&R man from New Records, came up to see us uh, play a gig in Edinburgh. Uh, this would be October 95. And actually, uh, he offered us a, verbally offered us a record deal after the sound check. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> precious off, we can make arses of ourselves now. We don't, we don't <laughs> need to play a proper gig. No, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And then he brought his, his boss, uh, Saul Galpern, up to rehearsal. We actually rehearsed with him in Glasgow and um and again, Saul reacted really strongly as well. So we were really, yeah, it was a bit of a fairy tale, I suppose, um, you know. With yourself and, and Steve and Dora then, were you guys the, the kind of main songwriting partners within, within the band early days? Early days? Yeah, I think that's right. But I, at the same time, I would say that Keith Graham and, and Stuart Evans were both people that could come with ideas. Both of them, for example, chipped in with uh, Into the Blue quite early doors, maybe about a year and a half to two years into the into the band's existence mm. you know so it's quite often a case with a with a band where you you have all these kind of songs like in our case like songs like dream on or going under that we're never really going to going to end up um cutting the mustard but then all of a sudden you start to write a song like a no one speaks or an into the blue and you think uh oh, that's worth keeping in the set yeah that's maybe indicative of our sound and and yeah. where we're going um so I think everybody started to get more confident as time went on, even though Steve and I were the main songwriters. But who were who your influences in music then growing up? Well, for me, I, I, was, 
I, to be honest, I think probably meeting some of the Geneva boys kind of was a bit of a musical education for me because until maybe I got to university, I was someone that was really into quite safe and quite obvious kind of pop rock music, to be honest with you. Hmm. Uh, U2 and Simple Minds and, uh, you know, some of the chart. I remember 1984, really hot summer, and I remember like all the chart hits of the day, liking Prince because it was an amazing, When Doves Cry was just such an amazing song. And, you know, then, but then at the same time, really liking Howard Jones uh, mm. or Laura Branigan, a Laura Branigan single. So I was someone that kind of grew up with that on one hand. And then my mum was very involved with the church and sang in the choir. And I went to the Boys Brigade and, you know, went Sunday school and everything else. So you, hymns were kind of a little bit of my upbringing. Mm. But then you, you, you know, you get to university and you start to kind of wake up to the 60s. You start to wake up to the Velvets and Bob Dylan and whatnot and then you meet people like Steve Dora who's like well have you heard this band you know or have you heard early primal scream or have you heard this early REM record or you know what ha- what have you so then that kind of I suppose kind of broadened my 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 knowledge and I'm naturally someone who's very very curious about things anyway I just I'm a bit of a Wikipedia freak and I'm also <laughs> a bit of a a music freak so even now you know I'm really heavily into electronic music these days and I, I just I'm constantly discovering stuff that's really kind of floating my boat. So, so that was kind of where, where I was coming from, you know. Um, couldn't play an instrument still, can't really. Um, so I was just, you know, singers really and melodies are what, were what me, got me going really, I think. So the rest of the band have like a, their own sort of musical tastes and you sort of, did you come together in some sort of melting pot or were you kind of into the same sort of genre of music, if you like? I think we were all indie kids, Chris. Yeah. I think that was probably fair enough. But then... For indie kids, the, the thing that was interesting about that was that the indie kids were very much looking back to the 60s. And we're not just talking about the Beatles and the Stones either, you know, or the Velvet Underground, obviously. And the Velvet Underground were someone that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to take, take a pill for your mind to be expanded by listening to the Velvet Underground and Nico, for example, especially the second side of it. I mean, just still one of the most incredible records ever made. But then, you know, uh, you know Stuart Evans, through his big, big brother Roger Evans, a great friend of... Um, of Steve Dora, actually, um, that's part of the reason why Stu and Keith came into the band through that connection. But, um, you know, Roger was a big fan of Scott Walker. So, you know, there comes Scott Walker into the mix as well. Then I, I get into Tim and Jeff Buckley, Tim just slightly before Jeff, but kind of really just going a bit of a journey, getting a lot of the Tim, Tim Buckley albums. So we, we, we were kind of exchanging ideas with one another. And then a couple of the boys were getting more into dance music with the, the kind of beginnings of that and the baggy sort of stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Obviously Stone Roses and Happy Mondays, you know, 89 to about 92 kind of phase. So where, this is like a really cliche question, but when did you, when do you think you kind of discovered that, that like the Geneva footprint or sound, if you like? Maybe a cliched question, but I think it's a good one, Chris. Because actually, I don't, I don't think necessarily you have to work at it. Because especially when you first start off, because maybe your first six weeks or however many rehearsals are maybe spent combining maybe the one or two ideas that you might have managed to to put together with uh, cover versions. In our case, a song like I always remember one of the, the first two songs I think we ever tried to rehearse together were Eight Miles High" by the Birds. And um, 
Someone in the City by John Spastian. I just heard the latter actually the other day there and it gave me a little bit of a warm glow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it, it was nice. But um, I, I think, honestly, back to what I said before, in the sense of when songs like No One Speaks, when you know you had Into the Blue, these were sort of milestones along the way. They, did, they all didn't come along at once, but then suddenly there was a little bit of a rash of songs that they ended up being on further Actually, Rash sounds a little bit negative. I should maybe rephrase that. A little run of songs. Um, so you had the likes of Further, uh, Lights of Nature Sore. And again, that was from me listening to actually more Tim Buckley than Jeff Buckley. Uh, it was more just, and Marvin Gaye and people like that, just sort of thinking, oh, I can do the falsetto as well. Yeah. Oh, what, what would it be like to try and, and, and really almost, it sounds ridiculous and absurd and couldn't lace the women's, Boots, but the late great Aretha Franklin. I, quite often, I hear melodies that are too high for for me to sing naturally. Mm. So therefore, you know, it's that sort of thing. Oh, it's that ecstatic, exultant kind of quasi-spiritual kind of vibe that you get from singing high. Yeah, was it something you consciously, I guess, really wanted to push yourself to do? Then was this this falsetto um, quite a unique voice within this kind of genre of music at the time? Certainly, something that was really refreshing to hear. Were you pushing yourself or pushing boundaries with yourself then all those early years, even in sort of um, Sunfish? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think maybe to start with, um, you know, you hear my speaking voice and it's it's not a, a really bassy speaking voice, but neither is it a really high speaking voice. So mm. naturally I was, I, I would say I'm possibly a low tenor, high baritone sort of thing. I don't know, it's weird. But then you just sort of think, oh, let's just try this. And and hearing melodies that were maybe just a bit too high and you know, maybe also just the way Steve was, what Steve was playing or Keith was playing or or Stuart was playing and just sort of, you know, I always remember with Tranquilizer, which we actually sort of really finalised after we, we got signed. Um, mm. Around about the time we got signed and I always remember Keith had kind of the beginnings of melody and some lyrics. But I, I thought if I'm going to do this, then it's got to be up an octave for, for it to really, because it, I, I wasn't convincing in the lower octave that he was kind of approximating. So therefore, it was a case of, okay, well, let's try this. What does it sound like? And thankfully, when you're 25, 26 years old and you have been singing for quite a while, your voice is in quite strong shape. And, you know, it's, it is a muscle. Um, and, you know, if, if you've done it before, you can do it again type thing. And yeah, Mark, yeah. Morris, Mark Morris told me that again recently when I was um, sharing a bill with it, when we were sharing a bill with him. And he says, if you've done it before, you can do it again. And, I, I, you know, I mean, there are some people who maybe have destroyed their voices through excess or what have you. But in my case he was right it's just it needs to be a bit of work it needs a bit, a bit of training so so to go back to your point sorry I'm, I'm very bad at going off the point but to, 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 to go back to your point um i yeah it was just naturally just feeling the self-confidence to try things and the same for steve and the same for for douglas and and keith to try different you know things that they were maybe influenced by as well So what were those sort of early shows then? Once you sort of realised your sound and you were confident to go out and start playing your own songs in front of a crowd in Aberdeen, mm. what were those early gigs like? Were they, could you feel like a, something in the crowd? Was it, were you starting to get, how, how quickly were you starting to get noticed as well? Um, we were really blessed. We played in a place called Cafe Drummond, which I don't think exists anymore. And it was a, a place actually overlooking a kind of, the back end of it actually overlooked a railway viaduct. So there's a big steep drop, uh, railway viaduct. But um, it was a, it's a thing you came down off the street and down in sort of layers 
and at the bottom of the, the cafe with the window given over at the viaduct to the back of you was the stage and just playing there felt incredibly comfortable from the very first time and even if we hadn't got the quintessential Geneva sound happening we were playing maybe no more than six months after starting maybe even less than that uh, so I would say it was possibly the beginning of uh, 1993 um, I can't remember for certain but I'm pretty sure it was something like that and we were playing some of our own songs and people were really open they were just so supportive people in Aberdeen are very nice anyway they're a really great bunch of people there but there was, there was a sense of sharing stages with other bands who were incredibly nice I always remember a band called Inertia um, early on we did a talent show with them and they won the prize because it was a, an audience vote and a lot of their mates were in but they split the prize money with us oh wow uh, they were incredible people and then we were really lucky you talk about getting noticed there's a guy called Jim Gellitley who today is uh, a, I think he, he maybe still uh, writes for one of the, the Scottish newspapers but he's also a, a radio broadcaster and he was he was at the time working for the Aberdeen Evening Express and he became an early champion of the band. And it was through Jim that we really started to get a wee bit of a reputation around town. And I'll always be grateful to Jim. He's, he's still someone I'm in touch with from time to time. He's just a lovely big guy, really super, super human being. And guys like him are just, they're worth their weight in gold because hmm. they do so much for local bands. They encourage bands, they encourage new talent, you know. Was it always what you wanted to do in terms of getting the deal? Was there the dream or there was a path or was it kind of something you were just happy to go with? I've got to admit, I, I think I think pretty early on we thought we want to see where we can take this. But we weren't we weren't one of these kind of cold and calculating bands. We weren't neither were we completely disorganized. We were sort of in the middle where we did have that ambition. But at the same time we weren't we weren't kind of we, we wouldn't sell a grandmother to get there, so to speak. Um, but we were we, we were getting better and we did have a feeling that we did deserve to kind of maybe get a bit more recognition and we felt it was partly the usual kind of Aberdeen where's that it may as well be Indonesia or something to, <laughs> to the music business you know but uh, yeah I mean we definitely felt that we had something to offer and you know then and along the way I mean we were lucky enough we you know we we I remember really quite early on we played with a band called CD Side. Um, in Dundee, I don't know if you remember them, an excellent um, all-female band, superb band. And afterwards they were telling us, and they were signed, and afterwards they were telling us, like, you guys should get signed, you guys are great, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that sort of gives you kind of a bit of a lift, you know, when, when people you kind of look up to a bit and respect say, say that. So, you know, and then, you know, even somebody like uh, a certain Mr. Um, Alex Capranos uh, was a guy that used to put on gigs in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And he had a band called The Blisters. Uh, and he was, always to me, to Alex, he was just a super friendly, lovely guy with a kind of quite stylishly dressed, kind of, kind of I don't know, 60s-influenced kind of little kind of houndstooth jacket. And of course, as we both know, he went, went on to great things with Franz Ferdinand, incredibly, incredibly creative, um, yeah. fantastic guy. But, you know, he, people like, like him were really encouraging as well. When things started to happen then, was there like a, I don't know, like a, like a moment when start, things started to trickle in and A&R and, and record labels and things? To be honest, it happened very, very suddenly for us. We did play, we had someone from, I think it was Gut Reaction Records that came to see us and passed on it. But then suddenly Nude Records, like I was saying at the outset, we, through this connection with Douglas, 
uh, came up to see us and once they were actually in the game, we didn't even attempt, we didn't have a manager. So we, we didn't even, we didn't even think about hawking out to the highest bidder. As soon as Nude were interested, we were, we were sold because we, I wasn't the, the, the biggest at that time, the biggest fan of Sweden in the world, but I, I really admired them and respected them. And then the other boys were, were mad keen on them, or at least three of the boys were absolutely mad keen on them. Mm. But in any case, we just sort of felt, well, if the, if that's Swede's label, then that's a, a label that's got integrity and it's got nows. So we really were a bit naive and we didn't end up signing for very much money either. But then that's, I won't bore you with the details there. Um, but uh, we also made the classic mistake of signing or publishing to the same, to the sister label. Oh, these are the mistakes you make. But um, but uh, yeah, so it all happened fairly quickly for us. You know, the interest came in, as I say, early October 95. And I was thinking to myself, I'm getting fed up with this. This isn't getting to the stage where we're going to get anywhere. Um, I'm thinking about just, I'd always wanted to live abroad, um, which I'm doing now, uh, but I always wanted to live abroad. And I ended up thinking, maybe I could get a job. I'm a journalist. Maybe I could get a job with the Prague Post. Uh, I really liked Prague when I went there yeah, in, yeah. In, in 1993. And then, you know, suddenly this trip to Edinburgh proves fruitful. And then all of a sudden, everything snowballs from there. And then we have this two months of just, you know, lawyers checking the contract. We even had to kind of get a recommendation uh, as to, you know, who would be a lawyer to look at because we didn't have a clue. I mean, we were, we may as well have come from the backwoods in that sense, you know. Um, mm. So, so yeah, so, there, so so then was it, that was it. And then if you think that we signed the contract about five days to a week before Christmas 95, and a month later, 27th of January, if I recall correctly, we were supporting Swede in their comeback gig, their fan club gig at the Hanover Grand in London, um, at which um, they were unveiling the whole coming up lineup. So Richard was already, Richard Oakes was already um, on board, but I don't think at that point Neil Codling had played a gig with them. So that was Neil's first gig. Yeah. Uh, so so we were the support band and we made a bit of a splash both with the, the fans and also with um, some of the music press. I recall, I think, Steve Sutherland from NME was there and he seemed to 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 really get it quite early doors. So um, so that was that was really nice. So so that was a very, very sudden, like October through to suddenly you've got a profile in the yeah. music press at the end of January. And and at that point, by the way, um you're still technically without a name because the record label has said Sunfish is not a name that you're going to set any um, any radio waves on fire with. <laughs> um, and uh, you need to come up with something better. And we just couldn't. We couldn't. We, I think we played that gig as Garland, which was a last minute decision before we went on stage. It was so ridiculous. And then we, everyone went, no, that's a shit name. So uh, we had to try and keep that name out of the music press. And then so NME had us on turn-ons on the enemy stereo and we had this song nature's Sore that ended up being a it wasn't a single release but it was a sort of a, i don't know what you would call it like almost like a proto <laughs> single or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that i i can't remember what they used to call it but um but uh yeah so they actually called us the scottish band shades <laughs> of Macbeth or something so so we ended up calling ourselves geneva because we were given an ultimatum by saul and 
I ended up just coming up with about 10 names, one, all of which I'd probably got from a dictionary, including Geneva, because it means gin as well as a city. But so, so oh, all good. of which is a very long-winded way of saying that there wasn't, there wasn't what you had, where you had this, maybe this buzz forming. The buzz kind of, if you like, came afterwards after we were signed. And then many people like Everett True, who was a very prominent journalist that, that wrote about the whole grunge scene and was friends with Kurt and Courtney and everything else, he, for some reason, put it about that we were a, a made-up band, that we were a construct, that we're Simon Cowell before Simon's time mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, get well soon, Simon, by the way. And, yeah, um, we always yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, so no, it was uh, so it was it was really weird. It's like people say, "Oh, they were a manufactured band." It's like, "Fuck me!" Excuse my language. Sorry, you can right. dub that yeah. out. But, no, okay. but it was like you know, we spent three na- three years trying to get you know even noticed by anyone. You know, just away up in Aberdeen. Don't say we're a manufactured band. It still rankles really when I think about it. Yeah. Was, was there another band that you were kind of um, quite close with that we were maybe going through the same sort of thing? We had the same manager as the Blue Tones, uh-huh. but of course the Blue Tones were darlings of the, of the press. But we we loved the Blue Tones and got so much time for those guys as as individuals, fantastic people. Uh, still see Mark now and again. We've played a few gigs uh, in the last year or so that he's been at and you know playing as well. And he's just the same guy. He's just a lovely, lovely person. And uh, then I suppose we were very lucky that Swede took us under their wing a bit. And we we mm. toured with them a couple of times and. Brett said fantastic things. He was just absolutely superb. But they're they're all really nice people, you know. Um, but I, I don't know. Was there a band that we really kind of identified with? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. Partly because we weren't really living in London. We were based in Glasgow, and then we'd go down and stay in London for a couple of weeks at a time or whatever. But um, which wasn't great for the advance, obviously. But um, I, I guess you know, we, we I remember we really looked up to Super Furry Animals. We just thought that they were they were handling the whole being outsiders thing incredibly well and much yeah. better than us. And they had that mischief. And of course they were making amazing records and we toured with them on the Brat Bus tour and we just thought they were amazing. Um, I remember we, we, we bonded a couple of the people in particular bonded really well with Tiger um, yeah. and, and they were really nice people as well. So a bit here and there, but I don't know. I'm, I'm Maybe I'm, my memory's letting me down here, but I seem to sort of really think the Blue Tones were people that we, we saw a fair bit of and got on really well with. Looking back at Britpop and that whole era, because part of this podcast journey that I'm going through as well as looking, and, you know, it's 25 years sort of anniversary of a lot of the shenanigans that was going on at the time. You, mm. you kind of you kind of turn up at the tail end of that when it's kind of all the, all mm. the hype and all that explosion, sort of people are getting a little bit tired of that. And your kind of, your sound is like an antidote, I think, or like a refreshing, uh, you know, change to that kind of style of music, which was, you know, good fun, but ultimately maybe didn't have the longevity, whereas, well, some of the bands certainly didn't. And did you mm. feel that, did you feel that you were doing something that was slightly different or maybe coming out of an era that was, you know, that had run its course? I don't want, I don't want to be too sort of uh, down on Britpop because I think what Britpop, and in particular the success of Oasis and Blur, created was a music the uh, the radio radio that reflected the times and that mm. they were much more inclined to play guitar bands signed guitar bands of the indie ilk um because of the Britpop pop kind of moniker but at the same time yes you're absolutely right i 
personally, I didn't feel any connection to it. I always thought, to be honest with you, and sorry to sound like a chippy Scott here, but I always thought for Britpop, read Ing Pop, or actually, to the man in Southampton, I'm going to say this, it's more like Camden Pop or London Pop. Mm. It was more like, much as I completely adore the Kinks, but it was more like, you know, Waterloo Sunset or, do you know what I mean? It just sort of felt... Even the way Oasis were from Manchester, they all moved to London, and there was the, the it was the whole sort of thing around that. And they might have had Northern accents, but they were very much integrated in that London scene. Even Pulp as well, a tremendous band, um, some ways responsible for the Britpop anthem. You could could argue it's yeah. much more than just a Britpop anthem. Obviously, Common People is a sensational song, um, but you know, even then, I mean, they don't move to London as well, even though none of them are from London as well. So I would say that I never really felt part of that. To be honest with you, we were just trying to be ourselves. Mm. Uh, we had the kind of soup of influences that maybe we'd, we, I mentioned at the outset, you know, the 60s stuff and the 80s indie stuff and whatnot. But it's not as if we were trying to be the next Blur or the next Radiohead or the next Oasis or whoever, whoever you want. They, you know, we admired a lot of what, you know, some of these bands were doing, but you know, we, 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 you can't. The, the whole point about being in a band is is that that you're you're expressing yourself, and if you're only expressing your record collection, then you're not really being true to yourself. And mm. and music, like like any other art, is is an expression of yourself. That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes Arthur Russell such a standout. Because if you listen to an Arthur Russell record. You think, who is this guy? This sounds slightly amateurish, but incredibly interesting and weird. And how did he do that in 1985 or whatever? And 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 that's just that's the joy of it. Just as it's the joy of listening to Marvin Gaye or Radiohead or or Metallica. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't matter Aretha Franklin. It's, it, you know, it's these people are all themselves, and that's what that's what makes music beautiful. Um, so, so for, we we very much had this thing of we had our own little kind of identity, at mm. least for the first album. I would say, Chris, we definitely had a, 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 our own identity. The second album, what was that process like? Did you have songs to, ready to go, or did you did you have a mad panic to get stuff done? What was it like recording or writing that second album? Uh, we had most of them, you know, if I, I don't know if I remember all, when we got signed, we had No One Speaks, Into the Blue, Nature Soar, Further, uh, Temporary Wings. Okay. Uh, Tranquilizer came in uh, early writing after we got signed. So we're probably talking about February 96 when that came together quite quickly. That was one of Keith's ideas, like I was saying. Fall Apart Button was another one of Keith's ideas that we we demoed quickly in in Glasgow, in the flat in Glasgow. But then really it became, it came into its own because we worked with Mike and we basically used the studio as a sixth member of the band. Then a song like In Years Remaining, that was an old song that we kind of dusted off and and tarted up and and that seemed to work. But yeah, we probably had about half the songs. So there was a little bit of, uh, we recorded incrementally anyway though. We yeah. didn't. We didn't. We recorded two weeks here, three weeks there, over a maybe about a nine, nine or ten month, month period. So, so it worked. That worked for us quite well, actually. And so, did, that, did a lot of that writing go on, sort of, on the road, or did you have time to sort of, sort of regroup after the sort of frenzy of the first album? Writing on the road is a very difficult thing to do for some people. Yeah. And that wasn't the case of. I mean, especially when it came to the second album, there was absolutely. I mean, the the first album. 
we only really toured for about five or six months and I lost my voice and then the record company and its wisdom decided, oh, this is a great idea. It's a, we can turn, turn the disadvantage to opportunity by quickly writing a new record and then coming so away Geneva back, you know, and we got mired in about two and a half years of hell trying to come up with a second record mm. where none of us really were quite ready to start writing and um, record company were starting to experience financial problems and they were desperate for us to write pop hits and we were just, we couldn't really get our, our, our heads around that. So writing on the road is quite a hard thing to do and it's, it's not for everybody. When did you think things were slightly starting to sort of go, not wrong, but things weren't going in the right direction? Um, I know that we had the early demos, it was a bit tricky. It wasn't sounding amazing. The songs were okay. Mm. Um, I then, I, 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 I think we went through not a bad period where we had some songs like Museum Mile and things like that that were coming to being, they were good. But I don't know. I, I, we got a bit of a Lisa, new Lisa Life working with Howie B, being given the kind of the creative license to work with Howie. Mm. But I do remember thinking we're trying to sort of cover an awful lot of bases here, and we're being quite ambitious in terms of where we were going. Are we doing the right thing? Feeling that we're doing the right thing, but still having a few doubts. And then I would say probably we knew that things were starting to go really badly coming into 1999 when it was just the record company wasn't reacting that, that great to the recording. And then we were having to go off and record with um, uh, Tommy D to kind of um, kind of come up with some singles. And um, yeah, I just sort of started to feel of, mm. mm. but I think, I think, sorry, this is a bit of a long answer because I'm thinking about it as I'm going along, but I think possibly when we got a really bad review, September 99, I think it was, we played uh, the embassy rooms or something in London. Mm. Sounds like a bloody snooker hall, but it, it was actually a, <laughs> it was a place that had a noise limitation to start with, which wasn't necessarily maybe the best the best idea. Yeah. But uh, and we got we got very underwhelming reviews from both the Yankees, and it just sort of felt as if uh, we might well have a curate seg of an album here, and it might well be that others have taken the clothes that we were wearing and and are going to make a success. You're still proud of that, that record, though, because it's a, it's a great record. I mean, in terms of what, what you're able to do with the sound and sort of just, I don't know, progress with it slightly, but, you know, remain yeah. true to your sound. I mean... Ah, uh, look, I mean, I, you know, I, I, we were quite critical of certain people at the time. I think age and hindsight, you sort of realise they were under pressure from their paymasters too. So I think I think that partly explains it. So that is that is to say that yes, ultimately you're right. Further along the line, num- money counts. But at the same time, perhaps also we weren't as focused as we should have been. And at the same time, I think maybe also there was much more life that we could have got out of further. But yes, to answer your question, I think Weather Underground has definitely has its moments. But what it doesn't have is that Geneva kind of imprimatur. It doesn't have the same identity mm. uh, as strongly as Further is. I wouldn't have wanted a retread of Further, although arguably we could have maybe made a, a really good record with Mike Hedges, mm. a second record with Mike Hedges. But, you know, it was interesting working with Howie, sometimes fantastic, uh, sometimes a little bit out there. You know, there were good things with all the, the recordings we did with all the various producers. But, um, you know, it was a bit of a curate's egg. I think that's the best way to describe it. Music stayed with you all the way through, isn't it? I mean, you've never really stopped producing or writing. You, you reformed uh, very recently too, last year. Yeah. 
I, I, I personally, I think all the boys to various extents have been writing, been in projects and kept music going. I personally have, have been in various bands. Um, I had a wee band called Amityville in London about 2003, 2005 period, which um, was doing quite well for a little bit, but it just well, maybe wasn't quite the right sound and it just... I don't know, we're maybe missing a couple of ingredients, but I'm still great friends with Stuart Peck and Dave Bevis, who were the two kind of stalwarts in there with, with, with me. They're dear, dear friends. Um, and there wasn't the pressure that there was, um, you know, the Geneva days in that sense. So, yeah, so I can that maybe fondly. And then, yeah, absolutely. I did a solo album, I think 2013, that came out, worked with a guy called Sean McGee, um, who's in a band called Art Magic with Richard Oakes. Yeah. From Mr. Oakes, who's... Um, I, I see from time to time, he's a, a good friend of mine. Yeah, I mean, I've just kept things going because, yeah, I mean, maybe I've had a bee in my bonnet about wanting to do something, but I think also just it's the love of music. I mean, I've had to work. I've never, I've never got back to the same status since mm. uh, Geneva. You know, it's always shared it with a job. And, it, and I think that's the same with uh, Douglas, Keith, um, Steve and Stu. But yeah, as you said, now we're back. Um, Stuart's not with us uh, in this incarnation. He lives in California, so it's not possible. But mm -hmm. I'm making the Stockholm thing, Stockholm, Scotland thing work, um, even, even though it's not always easy. Um, I live, um, I've lived in Stockholm for the last five years, um, live and work here, and I've had a band called Us, an electronic project that, that um, we released an album called First Contact um, last year. So, yeah, so I mean, music's always been part of my life. And to be honest with you, I'm... I'm going to be 51 um, in September and um, I, I can see music being part of my life for the rest of my days in some way, even if it never gets to much recognition, it's just too important um, to me and my identity. You know? So when do you think we might get to see Geneva play again then? Well, all I can say is that we, we, we played due to the lovely people at Starshaped. Uh, they asked us to play. We didn't see it as just a sheer nostalgia trip. We we saw it as a chance to maybe start maybe unfinished business. And I don't I hope that doesn't sound too pompous or self-important. <laughs> but just from the point of view, of, we, we kind of things came to halt quite suddenly in 2000, and um, we vaguely all kind of kept in touch a bit um, in the intervening years. But now is a chance to kind of maybe see, you know, we we maybe stop too soon, just see what we could we can do. We're all older, a bit wiser, uh, pressure's off. We're just going to see what's going on. We've been writing a lot of new songs. Thank God for GarageBand, which I'm <laughs> yeah. starting to I'm starting to kind of get to grips with in a very, very amateurish way, but um, can can come up with lots of different ideas and we plan to um, try and get an album. And then um, in answer to your question about gigs, oh God, I fervently hope that we can play again um, because we played in February uh, played in Glasgow um, and um, London, and I've oh God, I've forgotten there was another place, wasn't there? We played three gigs. I've did got mind, like I said. We did. We played Brighton. We played Brighton. We played London, and then we played Glasgow. And apart from being incredibly hoarse, the Glasgow gig, which was the last of the three gigs, it was a blast. The boys were playing so well. I mean, just fantastic. Steve's now doing the work of. Two men, um, <laughs> guitar-wise, just playing some fantastic stuff. Douglas is as good as ever, a fantastic drummer, and Keith is a fantastic bass player. And It's just it's something special about your first band. Uh, I'm really proud of the project I've got with, 
my friend Leo here in um, Stockholm has I'm super proud of and that indulges the electronic side of things mm-hmm. the sort of synth electronic side of things but um, the, uh, the the Geneva experience it does sort of feel as if it's really it's, I just hope that COVID is going to relent and allow his lives gigs from a selfish point of view but also in a non-Geneva point of view so that people can just get back to enjoying music theatre cinema each other's company. I mean, you're talking to someone, by the way, who, who who's had it. I um, I had it in March. Uh, I just got recently got a a test back because I did a test over here, and um, I uh, got a positive um, for antibodies, which means that I have had it. I oh, don't wow. know how long those antibodies are good for. And as you know, perhaps Sweden's approach to this whole thing is a little bit looser than say the yeah, rest of the UK yeah. there you very, go very frightening isn't it oh god oh. oh it's awful it's awful one way or the other Geneva will will be rearing our our, uh, our heads um fairly soon I, oh, clearly I mean we can't get in a studio together to do a whole bunch of stuff so it's not going to be that sort of record it's going to be more of a makeshift is a negative term it's more of an improvisatory record in some yeah, sort of yeah, way yeah, it's yeah. more of a WYSIWYG what you see is what you get type thing a little bit you know <laughs> so um so you know there's going to be a little bit of a spontaneity about it but I think that's quite exciting and I think it's about the raw creative process and and also I think we're growing because we've all you know we're all 20 years older we've all we've all learned and listened to an awful lot more music and hmm. experienced a lot more in our lives in the intervening time like like all of us like yourself too no it's Amazing. fun music is life my friend music yeah. is life I mean it's yeah. why we're talking to each other you know it's what it's a it's a it's a, one, it's a wonderful thing well Andrew it's been fantastic speaking to you I really appreciate you uh, talking to me about uh, Geneva past and present and um, really looking forward to hearing and seeing you again hopefully soon Thanks, Chris. It'll be great to see you. We'll have a beer after the show. Yeah? Massive thank you to Andrew again for the interview. It was really fantastic. It's probably one of the most nerve-wracking interviews I've done so far on the actual podcast. Of all the guests I've had, it's probably the most nervous going into this. It took about five attempts to introduce Andrew when we were recording that he was really uh, cool about it. And uh, I don't know, I was just... Uh, starstruck anyway he was an absolute legend if you've been listening to the podcast so far you'll be very familiar with this segment this is where i ask you to do whatever you can to support the podcast by writing a review on itunes that's really helpful leaving a five-star review that's also really helpful subscribing where you can and telling your friends and and retweeting and, and all that sort of thing on social media you can find me on most of the platforms uh instagram facebook and Twitter, just search for Back to Britpop. Well, that's enough from me. Uh, hopefully, I'll see you on the next podcast. Take care. <laughs>